Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. All right, good to see y'all. Y'all look good this morning. Yeah, yeah. You're welcome. Welcome back. Cool. Well, it's good to be here. So we're in the middle of a series called The Journey of Sonship, and I, I just want to, this is like my very favorite topic to teach on, and I could teach on it for years and years, um, but I'm just going to spend three weeks on it this time around. You'll get it again another time. So uh, a few months ago, nope, a few weeks ago, actually, um, I, uh, I was really, really sick. I had this um, pretty miserable pain, like right here. And I really wasn't sure what was going on, like, was I dying or what was happening? And so I, I uh, not wisely, I'm not recommending this, but I just really don't like going to the doctor. It's not a, even a faith thing. I just don't, yeah. Um, and it's not, that's not wise. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to tough this one out. It'll pass and I'll be okay. I didn't really know what was going on. I was a little bit uh, concerned. Um, and the pain became more and more excruciating. Um, and so after about five days of pain, I decided, you know what? This is pretty miserable. I actually woke up at about 2 in the morning, or no, about 12.30 in the morning, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and drive myself to the hospital, and uh, um, I'm going to get this thing, whatever this is, I need to get it taken care of because I can't really endure this anymore. Um, and, and so I did, and... I'm doing better. Um, and so if you want to know what it was, it was diverticulitis. That sounds pretty rough. It's a big word that has way more syllables than I usually use. Um, and, and, but I was in excruciating pain, but I, I thought this time around God was showing me something different. I want to talk to you just a little bit about, about pain and difficulty and hardship. One, let me say this, that I in no way believe that that was from God or caused by God because God doesn't send sickness. It's not what he has and it's not in his nature to give it away. Amen. Amen? And so, um, but in the middle of it, I realized, you know what? This pain really stinks and I recognize that it is from the devil. Now, it, it was also not simply from the devil. It was also from choices that I had made. And, and so... Um, but I know that the root of it is the devil. That's like where sin and, and sickness and everything stems from. And so I thought, you know what? While I'm experiencing this pain, I have an, an opportunity to do something that I will not have to do when I, when I get to heaven. And so every time the pain would get worse, this is a little bit crazy, I would just start worshiping God, praying in tongues. And I wasn't even asking God to take the pain away, but I was just like, you know what, devil, you're going to pay for this and worship to God. Um, I also know this. When I figured out what it was, I, I realized that I had actually been avoiding some prompts from God. And, and what God had actually been prompting me towards was uh, to, to live with less stress, to eat better, and to exercise. Those three things, I actually, like, so we were in this crazy push in our life trying to finish up our house to get it ready to sell. And so I was just like, God, I'll do that in like a few weeks. But let me just finish this, working like crazy, not sleeping at all, and eating junk food. Let me just finish this season, and then uh, I'll, 
I'll, I'll listen to you then. Um, and, and so I went through that season, and it was really painful. And then it got more painful when I got the medical bills. Um, but what happened is, is that I, I realized something that I know that God doesn't send sickness, but I also know that he is speaking correction to me all along the way. It wasn't the first time. The pain was not the correction from God. The pain was the result of me not heeding the warnings that God had been speaking to me because he actually cares a whole lot about me, and he had a way for me to avoid what I went through had I have listened to him. You ever been there? Okay. So God doesn't send pain. He doesn't cause pain, and it's actually his desire to... Uh, remove pain to bring healing and he's not really interested in causing us to suffer but at the same time he is interested in growing us and maturing us as his kids and I think sometimes what we want to do is we want to stay spoiled infants that have God do everything for us instead of taking responsibility to to grow and mature as sons and daughters that look like him and bear his image And so I know this, actually, here's what's cool, is that about three weeks later, four weeks later now, I feel healthier than I've ever felt before, or in the last several years. Um, I also, some of you thought, hey, Joel doesn't really have much weight to lose. I lost about 20 pounds in that whole process. Um, And and I just feel a whole lot better. And so I recognize that God was actually using that to refine me, although he never caused that. All right? And, and I think in that, I'm, I'm learning what it looks like to be a son. And so I just want to share with you from that kind of experience, and really more than that from Scripture, but I, w- I want to start with this. So um, we're talking ab- about uh, going into the wilderness, but I, w- I want to start with this because I think these three anchors of sonship begin to... Uh, to form a foundation for everything we know about our relationship with God. And the first is this, is that God is good and he's good to me. Say that with me. God is good good. and he's good to me. me. Most of us don't have a problem with saying God is good. But when we start to look at our lives, we start to wonder, hey, maybe he's good to Joel, maybe he's good to the person to my right or my left, but is he really good to me? Are his intentions for me really good, and do his intentions come with power in order to be made manifest in my, in my life? And so we start to wonder, okay, what is, what is God's intention for me? Is he okay causing me harm? Is he sending storms? We, we start to wonder all of those things, and let me say this, one of the clearest statements that Jesus made is this, that I've come to destroy the works of the devil. God is not in a civil war. He's not fighting himself. He's he's not sending sickness and causing people to sin and doing harm to people only so that he can rescue them. That's not the way that God works. And I think a lot of times we think, well, maybe he's setting this up and so he's sending some sickness so he can heal sickness. That's not the way that God works. Instead, what he is doing is he has come into our lives to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he's interested in. Sin, sickness, he's interested in destroying those things in our lives. And the question is, is how is he doing that? And I think sometimes when we don't get how he's doing that, we miss what he's doing. And so he's not only good, but he's good to me. And here's why he's good to you and to me is because he is faithful. 
faithfulness is in his nature, and he came to give life and life to the full, and he's not backing down from that. He did not come to take life, he came to give life. And sometimes, well-intending people tend to put the blame on God, that God's the one that's taking life, that he's doing harm, all of those things, instead of realizing that God's actually good and he's good to you and he wants you to have life and life to the full. He's not trying to take from you. He wants to give to you. And I believe his goodness is best displayed, the character of his goodness is best displayed in the person of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 14, 9. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. When we read Scripture, we come up with a lot of questions of what God is like. And let me say this to you, that the clearest and best answer of what God is like is found in the person of Jesus. And if you don't see what you believe to be true about God in the person of Jesus, then I encourage you to call into question the way that you see God. And so I believe that God is good and he's good to me. And so when I look at Jesus and the way that he interacted, he healed sickness. He didn't cause it. He set people free from sin. He didn't lead them into it. He forgave sin. He didn't condemn sin. We know that God sent, that the Father sent the Son because he loves the world and he wants to save the world through him and that he's not condemning. And so I want you to know that God is not condemning people. We see that God was the one not that causes storms, but that calms storms. And that God is, is not acting under the new covenant. He's not acting as the judge over the world. Instead, it's his desire that none should perish, but that all should be saved. And so what he's doing right now is not condemning the world. He's not causing storms around the world. Instead, what he is doing is he's giving authority to his sons and daughters to calm storms and to, to, to persevere through storms and to bring restoration after storms so that the world can know what God's like. Not only is he good, he's, is he good to me, but Point two of uh, the three anchors of sonship is God is the perfect father. When we read Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, what we see is this, that God started as a loving father and he's determined to end that way. One of the, the primary lenses that I believe that we should look at, at scripture is through a father-son lens. Then when we start to recognize the way that God is relating to us is as his children, it changes the way that we see everything that we see. But here, here's the thing. God is not interested in simply having a bunch of infants, but he's actually raising mature kids that would look like his son Jesus. And so when we begin to grasp what God's up to, it changes the way that we see everything. When we look even at the Old Testament, if you take the Israelites and you just look at them as if they were a person named Israel all throughout this journey, what we see is that God is continually faithful to them even when they're not because it's in his nature to be faithful even if they're not. And that he's walking with them and he actually, as he goes, he's actually changing the rules. He's changing the requirements. At first, the expectation on them, the revelation of what righteousness looked like to Noah was different than what it looked like to Moses. 
You see, because, because for me and my family, the expectations that I have on my two-year-old Evelyn are different than the expectations I have for my six-year-old Eliza. The bar gets raised as we mature, and so God does that in our lives also. And so now the bar for us is Jesus. Here's what's cool. I, I would be a bad parent if I, in four years, set the bar for Evelyn, who's two, to be like Eliza at six if I did not parent her and discipline her in order to get over that bar. You see, it's actually on my responsibility to give her grace, which is empowering presence, in order to get to the standard that I'm calling her to. And you see, God is parenting us in the same way. And so what you'll find is this in your life. Even what you were able to get away with when you were a new believer, God is now calling you to a higher standard. You're like, well, I've always been able to do that, and that's okay. It doesn't matter. You're not where you used to be. At least you shouldn't be. And God's actually maturing you so that you would be further down the road than you are. There are things in my life that, that I used to not actually have conviction about. God used to, he, he wasn't working on me in those things. And now, I, I can't go anywhere near those things. You too? You feel me? All right. And here's the thing about God being the perfect father. By the way, your experience with your earthly father pales in comparison to what your experience should be with your heavenly father. Many of you have bad experiences with your earthly fathers. And that begin, we begin to project those things onto God and think, well, if God's a father, I want nothing to do with a father. But let me say this to you, that God is your heavenly father. He's your perfect father. And he's always been fathering you even in the tough moments. And so I think it's crucial that we learn to receive him in our life as our father regardless of what Father looks like, and that you would allow Him to redeem your perspective of the idea of Father. And so we, we, we find out this, that God is the perfect Father, and He actually only gives good things to His kids. In Matthew 7, verse 9 through 11, we see this. Which of you, this is Je- these are Jesus' word, if your son asked for bread, would give him a stone, which is something that would do n- nothing for him, Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake, which is something that would do damage to you. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The context of this is actually in prayer. And what Jesus is saying is this. God is good and he's not going to give you something that will do nothing for you, and he's not going to give you something that will do damage to you. Sometimes we don't know what we need. And sometimes God doesn't give us what we ask for, even though we think it's good for us, because he realizes, hey, that's not going to do you any good, or that's going to do you harm. I don't believe that God misses our prayers. I think he hears them all, but he also is a good father. And so there are things that my kids ask of me that I can't give them like ice cream at midnight. Wait a minute. (laughs) Because I actually care more about their health and their destiny than I do about how much they like me. 
And I think that's, that's huge. And so here's what's interesting. In that same passage quoted in Luke, it says this. It says, how much more will the Father in heaven not give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know why it says that? Because the Holy Spirit is our pipeline to all of the blessings of God. When we receive Jesus, what happens is, is that we get adopted into the family, and in that we receive the Holy Spirit, which is our mark of adoption as God's kids that connect us with the Father. It actually empowers us to grow up into being like the Father. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who actually makes that happen. That's why it says it in two different ways, but it's saying the same thing. Three, this is all in the introduction. It's just a long introduction. Uh, Three, we have been adopted as his children. Steve told me this a few weeks ago. We were talking, and he said this, is that salvation is synonymous with adoption. You're not simply saved from hell. You're actually saved into relationship with the Father. Probably best illustrated by John 17, 3, when it says that eternal life is to know the Father. It doesn't say this. Eternal life is to know God. You see, most of the world knows that there is a God. But what Jesus is saying is that eternal life is to know God as Father. And I think a lot of us are comfortable receiving Jesus as Savior, but we have a little bit of difficulty receiving God as Father. And I think it's crucial that we learn how to receive God as our Father. Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.7, talk about this. I believe that sonship is central to how God relates to us. If you're in Jesus, God will not relate to you outside of your position as son. We're using that word son for both men and women. I talked about it last week. If you don't understand, just go listen to that message. Um, but God is always going to relate to you as his kid. He's not going to relate to you as something else. He's not going to relate to you as a slave. He's not going to relate to you as an object of, uh, of anger or punishment. He's always going to relate to you as his kid. You've been adopted into his family, and that's permanent. I, I love um, what George MacDonald says. He says that the word adoption used there in Galatians and in Romans is not that God adopts those who were not his own because life, all life comes from God, so we were already God's kids, but he readopts those who were already his own and he makes them tenfold, yea, infinitely more his sons. And the incredible thing about adoption is that legally, in biblical times, if you adopt some, a, a son, then they, it is impossible for you to ever cut them off from your family. You could disown your own kid, but you can't disown an adopted kid. God is not going to disown you. And he's relating to you, not based on your performance, but based on your relationship, your position as a son or a daughter. God is treating us as sons in Jesus. We have the same access to the Father as Jesus. God is not treating us as we deserve. That's, that's why as you continue to read past John 17, 3, it talks about God inviting us into the dance, the, the intimacy, the community of the Trinity. God is not treating us as we deserved on our own merit, but as Jesus deserves because we're in Jesus. His relationship with you is not performance-based. 
So the question is, if God is a loving father, then why do bad things happen to his kids? You ever thought that? Just me, all right. Well, I'm going to just talk to, I'll preach to myself. Joel, I'd really like to know the answer to that question. Please? All right. I'll be my own interaction this morning. If God is a loving father, then why do bad things happen to his kids? I actually think that the lenses that we look through determine what we see. How, how I, I look at God, how I look at Scripture determines what I see. And when I, when I begin to put on lenses of sonship, then it changes the way that I see myself. You see, I, I'm not simply an individual that's just going about life disconnected from God, but I've been adopted into the family of God. And so the way that God is relating to me is his son. And the way that he's actually relating to me and to you is as a son, a daughter, that he wants to mature to be like him. So let's go, let's go to um, Matthew chapter 3. And I think the way that we look determines what we see. And I, I think a lot of times we don't know what to do with the question of sovereignty of God. We don't understand, like, is, is God fully in control or do I have free will? And there's been all sorts of arguments and, and church splits over those type of questions. Can I say that if you ask the wrong question, it's impossible to get the right answer? And so one of the things that I'd like to say is that when we, we talk about Calvinism or Arminianism in the, in the context of sovereignty, like is God uh, fully in control and causing everything to happen or do we have free will and God's like basically backed way off of us and it's just all on us? When, when we look at, at it this way, we're removing ourselves from a relationship with God and I actually think there's a higher and a better way to see. And so the question is not, what is God causing? Is he micromanaging everything or, or do I have free will? But it's actually, what's my relationship with the Father? And I believe that the best way to look at that question of sovereignty is from a place of sonship and relationship. And, and, and when I move up to a higher place, what I realize is there are some dynamics that God, he's raising me as a son, which means this. For me as a kid, I, 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 I believe that I probably had the best parents ever. My parents were phenomenal. My mom, raising four boys, is the most courageous person that I know. She never tried to control us. And my dad set the example for what crazy looked like. <laughs> and, and so, but, but what happened is, is that when we were younger, they were teaching us the appropriate boundaries and disciplining us appropriately. And the older we got, the more freedom we got because they were giving us choice so that we could grow up into maturity. They weren't hovering over us, micromanaging every decision we made, but they actually loved us and trusted us so much that they gave us the, the personal sovereignty over our own lives so that we could even fail. But as we started as kids, the boundaries for our failure were not very big. Like, it was like, hey, don't go with more than like five minutes away from the house on your bike at like six or seven years old. And then when I was like 13, it was like, you can ride the Metro bus. I grew up in Houston. 
kind of a rough area, but you have to take some of your friends with you. And, and, and they begin to increase my freedom based on, on my maturity and the trusting relationship that we had. And so they were moving me in this place like, like I, I usually wouldn't be able to stay out as like a, a junior hire, you know, with probably without adults and past 10 o'clock. But then by the time I was a senior in high school, my curfew was midnight. Why? Because they were increasing the freedom that I had. And so I believe a lot of times that God is actually, he, he's not trying to control us, he's actually trying to empower us. And so the way he relates to us changes as we mature. Does that make sense? And so when, when we try to have like these concrete ideas of what God's sovereignty looks like and is he micromanaging everything, we miss it because we're asking the wrong question. The right question is, is how does God relate to me and what freedom does he give and why does he give me freedom? Because he gives me freedom because he's actually trusting me. You know that God actually trusts you? In fact, I think he trusts you more than you trust yourself. Thank you, Steve. I liked it. All right, so Matthew chapter 3, we'll start in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, who was his cousin. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need not to be baptized by you. I need to be baptized uh, by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased." This is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, which is why I read it every couple of months. But what happens is, is that we've got this incredible picture of the Trinity all together. This is one of the few places where you see that in Scripture. And, and so Jesus is baptized, and then um, he, he comes up out of the water. Heaven opens up. And by the way, I'd like to suggest that heaven opened over Jesus and never closed back up. And the Holy Spirit then comes and rests on him like a dove, and I don't think he ever left. The reason why he'd never left is because Jesus lived with an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit like a dove with him always. But here's, here's my favorite part, is that the voice of the Father says, this is my dearly loved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Had Jesus done any bit of ministry? No. Had he done a miracle? Not that we know of. God's pleasure over Jesus was not based on his performance, but based on their relationship. And I'd like to suggest that the same thing is true for me, me and you. That God is, he's pleased with you, and I believe that the Father is saying through the open heaven that exists under, over your life, that you live under the access of everything that heaven has, that, that he's saying, this is my dearly loved son, my, my, my dearly loved daughter who, with whom I'm well pleased. I believe that God's pleasure with you is based not on your performance, but based on your relationship. Not even based on the quality of your relationship, but based on the existence of your relationship. You may not even consider yourself a very good Christian, and I still believe God's pleased with you, that he's in love with you, that he delights over you, and that he's inviting you into better. Because he knows who you are, 
Amen. This next line, though, move on to four. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who led Jesus into the wilderness? The Spirit. Why the wilderness? You see, a lot of times we go through hardship and we say, why am I in the middle of this? And I think a lot of times we act like spoiled brats saying, God, if you're good, then why am I going through this? And I think right here it's pretty clear that God led Jesus into the wilderness. And he just said, I'm pleased with you. Sometimes the hardship that you go through has nothing to do with your performance and everything to do with God growing you. I don't believe that Jesus was led into the wilderness to fail. I believe he was led into the wilderness to be victorious. And I think a lot of the times we think I'm getting led into the wilderness and God is just leaving me on my own, but that's not what God's doing. God is leading you sometimes through the toughest situations imaginable, even worse than you could ever think of. And yet he's saying, look, I am leading you through this, not because I'm trying to destroy you, but I'm working to mature you. And a lot of times we try to abort the process and say, I'm I'm done with this. I can't handle this. And what God is doing is he's putting you in a situation where you're going to learn how to depend on him and walk with him so that you can mature and be victorious over anything that comes at you. And so often we want to give up. And so often we're like, I just can't handle this. Let me say this to you, that God is not interested in spoiling you. He's interested in raising you. And so often we're like, oh, God, why is this happening to me? God isn't taking you into a place to fail. He's taking you into a place to succeed. And if we miss that, then we'll back away from God. And we won't realize who he created us to be. I believe that your destiny is tied to the wilderness that you walk through. And that if you can be victorious in those moments, then you can handle anything and God can entrust you with even more of his kingdom. And so the devil comes to him and he says this. I think it's pretty, pretty interesting what he says. He says, the tempter came to him and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The very first thing that he does and the way that the enemy often works in temptation is he questions your relationship with God, which is the source to all of your victories. If God is really your father, if he's really good and not just good, but good to you, then why are you going through this? Sounds a lot like Job's friends. And I think so often... We miss what God wants to do in us because we're asking the wrong questions. And I, I, I think so often we put the blame on God when he's actually trying to empower us to be victorious. Jesus never questioned his sonship. In fact, he doesn't even answer the question that the enemy asks with an answer of sonship. He's so rooted in it that he doesn't need to explain to the devil his relationship with God. We see that he actually comes back to the same thing again. If you're the son of God, then throw yourself down from this high place, from the temple. If we start to question our relationship with God and our our position in him, then, then basically 
everything else in life becomes up for grabs. But when you recognize that you belong to God and he belongs to you and that he's a good father, then it begins to shape every situation that you're in. We know this, by the way, about God, is that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that he won't tempt you, we won't let you tempted beyond what you can bear. Some of you are wrestling with some ridiculous temptation, like it's really, really difficult and painful and miserable. In fact, you've been stuck in the same cycle of temptation for years. And let me say this of you, God is not letting you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So he's, if you're being tempted in that way, even in that pattern, then he's actually saying, I actually believe that with me you have what it takes to get out of this cycle. Here's another thing that we have to understand. James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone by evil. And so you have to understand God isn't the author of temptation, but he is the one who makes you victorious in the middle of it. And so we know this, that God is not leading you into a fight that you cannot win. God wasn't leading Jesus into temptation, but into victory. And here, here's what's interesting. You see, Jesus, he defeated the devil, right? He defeated death. He defeated sickness. He, he conquered all of those things, sin. He conquered those things. And then he didn't say, hey, as soon as you give your life to me, I'm, I'm going to be like that, that stuffed animal claw that picks you up and takes you into like that little box, drops you into heaven, you know? He's not trying to, he, as soon as you trust Jesus with your life, he doesn't remove you from life. Why? I, I, think, I think what Jesus says in John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, I've blazed a trail to victory, and now you just follow me into that place of victory. Take heart, I've overcome the world. He's not saying that you have to figure it out on your own, but he's also saying he's not just going to just take it from you, but he's actually going to lead you into victory in that place. And so often we want to, to escape from the trials instead of learn to walk victorious in the middle of them. Essentially, we see the same narrative played out with Israel as they left Egypt and moved to the promised land. They were in that same place Jesus was, walked, th that's, walked through the Jordan River, all that stuff where Jesus was baptized. Here's the interesting thing is, is that they went through the wilderness, and that process of going through the wilderness was supposed to teach them. They just elongated the process by not trusting God. It was supposed to teach them. It did eventually teach them how to live victorious in the place of the promised land. Your promised land is not heaven. It's a victorious relationship with God the Father. So God's not leading you into a fight that you cannot win. He's interested in sons and daughters who become more than conquerors. More than conquerors. So he's, he's not just trying to raise you as a son or a daughter who can like 
you know, squeak by and survive. He's not trying to make us survivors. He's making us more than conquerors. So it's not just I made it through that thing. It's that I actually got victory over that thing. And from that place, that's where I live. I've been, you know, I pay attention a little bit to our church family. Some of you have been through horrible things in the, even in the last six months, things that I have not experienced. And I'd like to say to you this, that God did not cause those things, but he is going to make you victorious in those things if you allow him to. And it doesn't mean that it didn't hurt, but he promised to be our comforter, not because he wanted us to live cushy lives, but because he knew that we would need comfort in the life that we're living. switch over I I think this is maybe one of the best answers to this whole question why the wilderness go with me real quick to Hebrews 12 y'all doing all right just a heads up I'm gonna go a little bit longer than normal verse 1 we'll move through these verses fairly fast I think Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Some of you are sidetracked from your destiny by sin, and you just need to throw it off. Like, you just need to quit. All right? Amen? All right. And then let's run. By the way, I told you this was going to be quick. It's not. Spiritual maturity, the, the, the place where we're the most spiritually mature is not simply that I would have victory over sin. I believe that's the beginning of maturity, not the end of maturity. And sometimes we think, hey, when, when I die, I'll finally be free of sin. That's baloney, y'all. That means that Jesus' death was not good enough to get you free from sin. And it has to be your own death. Therefore, your own death becomes your salvation instead of Jesus's. I'm not saying that we don't struggle, that we're not tempted, and I'm not saying that you can't sin when you're in Jesus. I'm just saying that you don't have to, that he always provides a way out, and he's calling us to be victorious. I'm also saying that God does not, in the new covenant, relate to us on the basis of our performance, which means sin. He's not relating to you on the basis of your sin. He's relating to you on the basis of your sonship. It doesn't mean, though, that he doesn't, that he's okay with your sin. He just is going to, he's going to separate it. He's already paid the price for you in that, and he wants you to live in a victorious place over that stuff. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. You have a different race than everybody else. Run the race marked out for you. Stop getting out of your lane. Stop judging other people in their race. Just run your race. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Some say the author and perfecter of our faith. It's interesting that First John says that as he is, so are we in this world. The reason why we fix our eyes on Jesus is because God's our father. Jesus is our big brother and our example of what it looks like. And so we just keep our eyes fixed on him. And as we go through, as he, we let him blaze the trail and we just follow right on after him. And it says, for the joy set before you, he endured the cross. It doesn't say because of your sin, which is part of the reason. But the whole reason is that he saw you and me. That was set before him. And so he went through the cross to get to us. Scorning its shame, he took care of yours too. And he sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. He says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Think about Jesus. Anytime you think about giving up, think about Jesus. You think you got haters, think about Jesus. You think it's hard for you, think about Jesus. Follow his example. It says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus shed his blood so you wouldn't have to. And you have And have you completely forgotten his word of encouragement that addresses you as the father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Let me say this. Some of the best words that God has ever spoken to me have been words of rebuke. That he cares about me so much that he's not going to let me stay where I'm stuck. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's me. Maybe it's you, but I know it's me. And he chastens, it's you, by the way. And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. This verse, you should remember this verse, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline because God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not, if you are not disciplined and everyone who undergoes, disi- everyone undergoes discipline, then you, are not Ill- then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, We all have had human fathers who disciplined us, uh, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of the spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while uh, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Say holiness. Holiness. Here's the point. It says endure hardship. Say hardship. hardship. Endure hardship is discipline because God is treating you as sons. What we're doing in life has hardship to it. And we have to understand that God is not engineering your hardship, but that he is with you in the middle of it. Because he's teaching you how to live victoriously. If you pay attention in life, what happens is this, that you go through something that actually teaches you discipline so that you can handle even more. When we had one kid, I thought, man, this is a lot. But one kid disciplined us. As much as we disciplined her, she was disciplining us so that we could handle more. God intends hardship. He doesn't remove you from hardship. He intends hardship so that you will mature as his children and share in his holiness. Let me say this. Persevering hardship does not earn you holiness. It says that he wants wants you to share in his holiness. He's actually entrusting his holiness to you. He purchased it for you on the cross, and he's entrusting it to you. Holiness is not something you earn. It's something that you steward. But our capacity to steward holiness increases as we learn discipline. And God loves to discipline us. He's not punishment. It does not say endure punishment. God is not punishing us. He's relating to us as kids. He's not treating us based on what our sins have earned us. That's what punishment does. Instead, he's disciplining us because discipline always comes with direction. The reason why I discipline my kids is not to pay them back for what they did. The reason why I discipline my kids is because I am teaching them how to live in a better way. How to to not go backwards, but actually to move forwards. So the starting place 
for me with my kids and discipline is you're forgiven. I don't ask them to apologize first. I first say you're forgiven. Why? Because that's what the Father does to us. He forgives us before we ever ask for it. So that's the starting place. Grace is the beginning of our relationship, not the end. They're not earning it by asking for forgiveness. They're, they're giving it, which sets the tone. I'm giving it, which sets the tone for our relationship and the context for discipline. We're putting the past behind us, and now we're living forward. Still with me? All right. And so God is using hardship to mature us as his kids, which changes the way that we probably should look back on our life. That everything that, that you've been through has been an opportunity for you to grow. Sometimes we have to repeat some classes because we don't get it, we don't grow, we just throw a fit in it, we just give up. But what he's saying is, is that I'm, I'm growing you, and everything that comes at you I trust you to be victorious with. I think our perspective on hardship reveals our revelation of sonship. So when hard stuff comes, do I think, God, why are you doing this to me? Or am I saying, God, you're a good father and we're going to get through this. You're going to mature me in the middle of this. Our perspective on hardship reveals our revelation of sonship. Here's what's great. Move on to verse 10. It says, God disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. He's inviting us to share in his holiness. And then I love this. Go to 14. It says, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And so God is teaching you to live in a place that's victorious so that you can see him move in mighty ways. Our perspective on hardship reveals our revelation of sonship. Let me say that in a different way. The last point, how we endure hardship reveals our grasp on sonship. Final uh, passage, we'll go to James 1. It says, uh, verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't know very many people who do that. Here's a trial. Come on, yes! Let's get excited about it. Consider it pure joy. Why is he saying that? Because he knows that we need to change our perspective. Okay, God, this is coming at me. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be really good because I trust you. Here's what we've, we've talked about before about that word joy. Joy is not happiness, and joy is not circumstantial. Joy is an awareness of the presence of God. And so what James is saying here is get aware of the presence of God and let that affect your attitude instead of letting your circumstances affect your attitude. But you've got the presence of God in you. So get excited because you're going to be victorious in the middle of this hardship. Don't get taken out by hardship and say, you know what, I'm going to jump up and down. This may look tough, but I've got the presence of God with me. And there is nothing in the world that is better than the presence of God. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because... You know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let me say this. Your faith can only go as far as your understanding of the goodness of God. When you recognize that God's good, 
that he's faithful to you and that you've been adopted into his family. When you see those things, then, then you can have your faith gets tested and you'll always pass. So we know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance run its, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. What God's interested in is not your comfort. He's interested in your maturity. And so we go through hardship instead of get removed from it so that we can mature and share in his holiness. Here's what's interesting about holiness. The Holy Spirit is also known as the spirit of holiness. Even when you look at the, that Greek language, what it is is the Holy Spirit is the spirit of holiness. And so, when you share in his holiness, you're actually sharing in his spirit. And so he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can, to mature us and so that we can share in his holiness. So that we can be more like God. And you see, I, I believe ultimately that hardship is our training for reigning with Christ that he's teaching us what it looks like to be victorious so that we can look more like him. And so, so ultimately, our, our role is this, and Hebrews says this pretty well, is that Jesus defeated the enemy, and the enemy is under his feet, and now God is expecting us and teaching us how to live in a way where the enemy is under our feet also. And so we're learning what it looks like to be a victorious people. Why the wilderness? So that I can learn to be victorious. Let me say, God isn't trying to entrust you with hardship. He wants to entrust you with his kingdom. And the way that we endure hardship proves our trustworthiness. And when I say kingdom, I'm not talking about something far off. I'm talking about what he's already giving to us now. He's just not going to give us more of it than we can handle. And so he's maturing us. Who wants more of God's kingdom? And let's just endure, like, like not just survive, but let's endure and be more than conquerors in everything that comes at us. Instead of saying, God, why are you doing this? Say, okay, God, you're maturing me. Uh, I, I recognize that you're teaching me how to be victorious in this. Yes. Let me finish by saying this. Ministry team, worship team, you guys can come back up. Um, that what this means is that we probably have to rethink how we've seen our previous experiences in life. Some of the hardest things that you've been through, you're going to have to rethink those things. You're going to have to rethink those things through a lens of God's goodness. You're going to have to rethink those things from a perspective of sonship. You're going to have to see them differently and not think, God, why are you doing this to me? But God, you're teaching me how to be victorious in those things. And probably what you need to do is even repent. And a lot of times, there's this, there's this idea that, that we need to forgive God. And, and, and I, it's almost right, but I just want to give it a little bit of a tweak. We don't forgive God because he did nothing wrong. Instead, what we do is we repent so that we recognize that what he wasn't doing was wrong, but that my attitude, my perspective was so that I can come in alignment with him. And so I say, God, I, I release that. I, I held this judgment. We judge God, by the way, y'all. I held this judgment against you. And I'm actually releasing you from that so that I can experience you as Father. See, you can't receive from what you judge. And so I'm going to stop judging that and I'm going to start receiving you as Father. I'm going to realize that I didn't understand what I was going through, but I'm just going to hold on to the biblical anchor that you're good no matter what. 
You're not just good, but you're good to me. I, I felt estranged and separated by you f- from this, but I'm not going to live by my feelings. I'm going to live by the truth that I'm your son, and you're not taking that away from me, that you're always faithful. And I believe that as we do, we recognize how good God is, and we live into who he created us to be. Stand with me. This morning, there are some of you that are going through hardship, and it, let me say this. Sometimes what we explain away as hardship that God wants to endure is actually a good chance for a miracle. And sometimes you're struggling with sickness, and we just say, oh, God, you're just teaching me a lesson from that. Here's the lesson that I believe ultimately he wants to teach you is how to get healed. And so you may need healing in your body. You may need healing in your mind. You may uh, just need to, to give your life back to Jesus and say, God, I recognize that I'm adopted by you and just receive Jesus into your life. Where, wherever you are, I just encourage you to, to just take a second and listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And then if you need somebody to partner with you in prayer, maybe you just need to receive the Holy Spirit and all the power that comes with it. But whatever it is, I just encourage you to take a minute to respond. These folks up here are good and trustworthy, and they would love to pray with you. Also this morning, we have our prophetic encouragement team, and you can catch them after service by going out in the hallway, and they just want to hear God for you and encourage you. So some of what they share is they're just going to bless you and encourage you because they know who God is and how much he loves you. Some of what they share is that they're hearing God in prayer. Prayer is always a dialogue not a monologue. They're hearing God, and they just want to speak God's words over you. Let me encourage you that it'll be really good and safe. They're not trying to call out your sin. They're calling out your destiny, so it'll be really good. So if you, if you need some encouragement this morning, then they would love to do that. Let's pray. King Jesus, you're really good. We just fixed our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for leading us into relationship with the Father. We just acknowledge, Father, that we're your children that we belong to you, that nothing can separate us from you. Lord, I thank you for new eyes to see, that we would see everything from the perspective of sonship. Lord, that we wouldn't be taken out by the storms, but we would learn how to be victorious. I just declare over you this morning that you were created to be victorious, that nothing, that life, that the enemy could throw at you is too much for you to handle with God. I just declare that God is with you. He's never leaving you. Even if you don't feel like he's with you, he's with you. He's fathering you. He's protecting you. He's raising you. He's maturing you. He's giving you his holiness. We love you, Jesus. Amen.